0: RiskWatch is a due diligence and compliance podcast featuring interviews with leading compliance, investigations, and research professionals to shed light on global corruption and compliance related issues. RiskWatch is brought to you by VCheck Global, a business to business provider of due diligence, background checks, employment screening, document retrieval, and specialized research of both business entities and individuals. Seth Harlan of RiskWatch here. Joined by Tom Stocks, Senior Investigator with the Organized Crime Reporting Project. A Russian speaker, Tom specializes in investigations of transnational corruption and cross-border money laundering. Welcome to Risk Watch, Tom.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, So let's just touch on OCCRP's recent Russia sanctions-related work. It definitely caught my eye, especially your Russian Asset Tracker project. Since your team's kicked off this project, what's been the biggest surprise you guys have uncovered? Um, I would
1: say, you know, the, the sad thing really here is that none of this is actually that surprising. What we've what we've managed to show um, in a short space of time is uh, seventeen billion dollars worth of assets tied to oligarchs and officials close to the Kremlin, um, and we've known this for years that this enormous wealth is stashed um, in the EU, in the UK, in the US, and other countries. Um, much of it coming from potentially corruption um the pr- the problem is that you know we don't even know the scale of it so really we've just hit the tip of the iceberg um but in terms of you know um surprises i guess you know what one of the one of the things we've been looking at is uh, superyachts um which is you know a high value asset that an oligarch or an official could own um you know that's a very guarded industry people it's a very small world people generally don't really want to talk that much um We've been surprised by the amount of people, crew, for example, or former crew of Superyachts who've responded to outreach. Um, I think the difference now is people are truly disgusted by the war and the Putin regime. And, you know, whereas in the past, they might have protected that, that kind of information quite jealously. They're actually willing to offer a bit of help. Um, so that's encouraging. Um, the, also the reaction from the public's been really great. Um, you know, we've, after we, after we published the Russian asset tracker investigation last week, we um, we basically set up a sort of crowdsourcing um, outreach, you know, uh, tip tip um, uh, place to drop tips for us. Um the responses so far have been incredible. We've had you know hundreds of responses, and some of them are actually quite good. Um, in terms of the the actual you know findings, we have. Gathered in this Russian asset tracker, you know many assets that have been published before, and we've also managed to incorporate new ones that have never been published. Um, so we we found you know a castle in Austria belonging to the family of Abramovich. Um, we found a villa in Tuscany um, belonging to Igor Shug- uh, Shuvalov, who was the deputy PM of Russia. So we've managed to find a new a few new things as well.
0: Are you finding that the oligarchs are making a, like more of an attempt now to cover up their private jet, uh, super yacht travels? Now that there's so much scrutiny on them,
1: yeah, a little bit. Um, I think you know, in the past, the tendency has always been, especially with the the oligarchs, you know, the the, the business figures. Let's say the tendency has always been to to flash that wealth and to show it. I mean. You know, what could be a more famous example of that than Roman Abramovich buying Chelsea Football Club? Um, obviously, that's all flipped on its head now. And the the goal is to hide those assets and conceal them because they could be frozen. And they could be seized. Um, so already, you know, we're seeing uh, some some element of asset shifting um, assets being reassigned to trusted associates and family, things like that. Um, sort of the usual tricks uh, that are employed to try and conceal asset ownership.
0: And just continuing on the topic of uh, the super yachts, private jets. So I've been perusing this Instagram account recently. It's called Rich Russian Kids. It has 1.6 million followers. It's just you know a lot of pictures of the oligarchs kids posting pictures in like a Ferrari on a yacht, that sort of thing. Um, Are you finding that the oligarchs have become more cognizant of their kids' social media posts?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I've been... um I've been doing this kind of work for the best part of a decade, and compared to when I started, the difference is is quite pronounced. Um, people are a lot more aware of how the internet can be harnessed by investigators, by law enforcement, um, by asset recovery uh, lawyers, and by and by journalists. Um, and they've become a bit more discreet. Um, but you know, at the same time, there is this just overwhelming um, desire, it seems, among certain groups of people to. To publish that wealth and flaunt that wealth. Um, one of the more interesting revelations in the last couple of weeks that I've seen was a, um, a property, actually I think it was exposed uh, last year, but it sort of has resurfaced now, a property owned uh, in London um, worth uh, four and a half million pounds, uh, which was acquired by the 21-year-old stepdaughter of uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia. Um, so, you know, this is this is wealth, which I think is, Fairly, fairly well spits the definition of unexplained wealth. You know, she was very young and had no known other sources of wealth. Um, One of one of the aspects of of this particular person is that she had, you know, very much flaunted this wealth on her Instagram for years. You know, her her luxury life in London, her travel, her own apartment and all these things Um, that that's kind of come back to bite now. So that tendency still does does go on in some quarters. But, yeah, it has it has become less pronounced in recent years.
0: That's interesting you mentioned that because I I saw those photos. They were all over my Twitter feed. And as soon as I knew I was going to talk to you, I'm like, I got to ask about the social media posts. Just another thing I wanted to ask you about is when tracking oligarch assets, a huge challenge has just been the fact that the official documents, they're often listing the ultimate beneficial owners as someone else, like a business associate or just like an average Joe. These guys, you know, they're being paid for the use of their names. How's your team tackling these investigative obstacles?
1: Yeah, that's it's a really good question. Um, I guess, I mean, yeah, it's well known that all, all these officials and all of us will employ this tactic of assigning the assets to trusted associates or to offshore firms or or whoever um, as an asset protection strategy. Uh, you know, a way of creating plausible deniability whether they own that asset. Um, you know, we it's, this is not a Russian thing. This is this is what you see um, all over the world. Um, the problem is that you know sometimes those assets. Uh, you know, it, it is actually implausible. Um, we we recently published an um, investigation called Swiss Secrets, which was focused on bank accounts uh, at Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank. Um, in that, in that, um, which was also a leaked uh, data set that we we worked on there, and in that we found, you know, accounts worth billions of uh, Swiss francs owned by a, um, a, a a gynecologist from Tashkent in Uzbekistan. You know, where I think. You know, you you could couldn't expect to be particularly wealthy doing that job in in um, Uzbekistan. This person happens to be the sister of Ali Osmanov, who's one of the wealthiest oligarchs in Russia. So, you know, when you do see uh, assets held by people, and it's really quite implausible, that's obviously a telltale sign. We we also saw in the Russian asset tracker um, some uh, some high value assets, properties, um, planes as well, owned by the children of Igor Shuvalov, the former deputy PM of Russia. Um, you know, these were these were assets ultimately owned by companies in the British Virgin Islands, and they, they were established when those children were about 19 years old. So again, you know, if it doesn't look right, um, it probably isn't. Um, you know, and in other cases, we've seen, as I mentioned, I think before, you know, asset shifting uh, quite recently. So um, on the day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you um, one uh, company that was owned by uh, Roman Abram- Abramovich was um, reassigned to uh, another company that was owned by one of his long-term trusted associates, who obviously was not going to be sanctioned. So, you know, the fact that that happened on that date is is again a telltale sign. Um, the 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 place where it becomes really hard, I think, is when you have. You know, when you have a genuine plausible deniability. I mean, a lot's been said, for example, about Fahad Mashiri, who is the business partner of Alicia Usmanov. And, you know, he's a he's a kind of a wealthy businessman in his own right. Um, so we can't just say any asset owned by him is isn't Usmanov asset, he's a front. That that's in that's itself an implausible and weak argument. Um ultimately, you know, it's it's kind of an editorial decision. We're a news organization. Um and you know, we have to make a decision, and and we do still have a bunch of assets owned by you know associated people, owned by offshore companies, and you know we're we're ninety percent confident these are probably owned by a particular oligarch, but are we a hundred percent confident? Would we would we take that to court? No, and that's kind of the level of proof that we've really tried to establish for this particular project. You know, if we're if we're not you know very very certain, we won't publish it, and we'll keep working until we do have that proof.
0: And just stepping back a few years, so in 2018, there was a round of American sanctions which targeted the Russian government and a number of its oligarchs. And this was in response to Russian aggression in Crimea, Syria, Ukraine. How did this uh, round of sanctions influence America's current sanction strategy?
1: Um, so I think, you know, with with, with the Russia sanctions, the, the, t- the turning point, the starting point really was 2014. So that that was when, you know, R- Russia annexed Crimea and it launched operations in the east of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, that that was when the U.S. especially started first imposing sanctions. And that became, I guess, a benchmark of how to apply them. I mean, before 2014, you know, the U.S. generally had pretty good relations or was trying to keep good relations with Russia, perhaps. You know, Hillary Clinton visited, I think, in 2011 or, or, or something like that. Um but then, you know, in 2014, there, there was an attempt to apply sanctions um, to some people close to Putin. So, for example, uh, Sergei Chemazov who was an old FSB colleague of Putin's who runs RosTech, which is a state tech company, and others like that. Um, his, his pals, the Rottenberg brothers, I think their company was sanctioned in 2014. But the, and, there, and there were also sectoral sanctions. So they, they targeted specific, you know, economic sectors like the military or aviation and things like that. But these sanctions were not really far-reaching. They were very targeted. I guess they were kind of like an opening warning salver, really. Um, and people like, uh, you know, Rottenbergs um, or Sechin, people who were sanctioned in, in those times, you know, they, they could kind of wear those that sanctioned status as a, a sort of badge of honour, really. They, they'd taken one for, you know, the, the Putin regime. Um, so, you know but i think you know what's clear is that they didn't really have a huge effect you know they didn't bring the economy to its knees in any sense um you know business as usual carried on after that period of time we saw some other crazy stuff happening like you know poisoning um of of dissidents in the uk other assassination attempts in in europe and so on by you know russian state actors um so i think i think those earlier sanctions didn't really go that far. That was, you know, what emboldened potentially the, the the Kremlin to to take the actions it did in the following years. But now, you know, I think that the lesson learned from that is that, you know, you have to go hard and you have to go quite far. And that's what I think the the US and the EU and the UK and others are doing right now, um, you know. And they're, they're, they're doing it in waves. They're trying to keep something in the bag. So every every week there are more people sanctioned, but there are many more who still could be. Um, And I think that the the wide ranging people that are that are being kind of incorporated into that just goes to show, I mean, you know, last 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 week, I think um, Igor Tinkov, uh, sorry, Oleg Tinkov was um, was sanctioned. And, you know, he's someone who traditionally isn't seen as being super close to the Kremlin. Um, you know, he's perhaps just, just you know, played sort of play, played the system, let's say. But he's, you know, generally done well for himself. He was sanctioned, and I think that's some, that's a, a sign that you know that the US is willing to kind of stop at nothing to try
0: and send a message. So, just since the start of the uh, current crisis, what are you seeing in regard to Russia's shadow economy?
1: Um. You know, I think it's really it's really early days to say um with respect to kind of shallow economy questions. I mean I, I think you know it's it's gonna take a while um before we even see the the full effects. I think what we can expect is some degree of um you know repatriation of assets um to Russia. You know, I think in, in the past the, the reason why oligarchs from Russia and, and other countries um, in that region, you know, have put their assets in the UK and the EU and elsewhere is because they're kind of a more secure place for them. And w- and it's where they can enjoy them. Th- those days are gone. Um, you know, it's it's actually uh, less secure to have your assets in, in London or Paris now, because you might get sanctioned. So I think there's going to be an attempt to pull some of those back into into the Russian economy. Um, you know, and I think there'll, there will probably be a fi- attempted fire sale of certain assets, maybe, you know, a, a liquidation of things, uh, which you know, it's it's a lot easier to track. For example, a super yacht than it is that a, a valuable piece of art, let's say. Um, so I think you know we can expect those kind of things to to take place. Um, I would say as well, you know, Russia's economy is, is probably going to have to integrate better with the Chinese financial system. Um, you know, Russia and China are, are are kind of useful allies in a way. And you know, bl- when blocked um, from the the Western you know financial system. Uh, which isn't a full block yet, you know, Russia can still use Swift, but it might be coming. Uh, I think they're going to have to integrate better there. And part of that's probably going to be cryptocurrencies, you know, which is well known on, um, among the best routes to launder money um, and and transfer, you know, uh, shadow funds, let's say. Um, and that could become a, a potential part of that as well.
0: So... It's really no secret the u s real estate market, you know especially southern Florida, the Miami area, it's been a money laundering destination of choice for Russian oligarchs for many years now, yeah. uh, aside from commercial real estate, and I, I know you just touched on uh, crypto, are there any other sectors of the American economy, or even you know if we're looking into emerging industries that really warrant intensive scrutiny um, in terms of oligarch involvement?
1: Yeah, well, just just going back to, to properties. I mean, the the properties one is still, I, I would say, a key one because it's such an attractive vehicle, um, and it's 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 possible to invest so anonymously. You know, there's there's been the uh, corporate transparency act um, recently in in this in the states. Is that, I think I think it's called the corporate transparency act, or it was a, a new act last year anyway. Um, and you know, this this should go some way to helping, um, you know basically stop the anonymous use of uh, LLCs to buy property which is kind of the, the normal method um un- unfortunately you know okay so the, the 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 UBOs of of these uh companies will be disclosed to you know the US authorities but they won't be public um and they, and they probably should be because you know law enforcement is is part of the part of the response to this kind of system but it's o- it's only a part and you know civil society uh, media you know, legal firms as well all have an interest and a stake in this kind of uh, process of tracking these assets. Um, so I think you know, property still remains like a really important one. Um, I think fine art as well. I mean, New York has famous uh, you know art auction houses, and the, you know, art's a really hard one to track because who who owns a piece of art? I mean, it's a it's it's a very unregulated industry. Very often, the, these actual artworks are. They're not even in in the in the room or in 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 you know New York. They're um, they're placed in a in a free zone somewhere in Switzerland, perhaps, um, and it's just the money that changes hands. Um, and very often, you know, there are intermediaries who who buy those uh, those pieces of art, and no one knows who the real buyer is, and there's no obligation to disclose that. So I think that's that's an area that does need more scrutiny. And I would say as well, you know, generally the the world of hedge funds. I mean you know banking is quite, is a fairly tightly regulated uh system globally and in the US but you know hedge funds get less regulation and you know we have seen oligarchs being able to invest um huge amounts of funds bundled into different hedge funds um and and this was stuff that was disclosed in the in the FinCEN files which was you know another week that was published a couple of years ago um so I, yeah i would say properties does does still you know pose a question fine art and and you know the securities and hedge fund well
0: The fine art angles is really interesting just because, you know, there is always so much attention on real estate or even investments. So I appreciate you hitting on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's absolutely uh, you know, it's it's an unregulated area and it does need a lot of work. And I think there's there's a lot of catching up to do that.
0: And just to wrap up, let's move across the Atlantic. So London's been a favorite. Russian oligarch destination for a while now. And just given your experience as an asset tracer based in London, what are your thoughts on the efficacy of the UK's recently passed Economic Crime Act?
1: Right, yeah. So um, the the Economic Crime Act was passed, um, kind of, you know, supercharged uh, quick process at the start of March, Um, you know, in response to the, the Russian invasion. Um, the main, the main crucial difference, um, or the main new uh, part of this uh, law, is is that it will incorporate a public register of the ultimate beneficial owners of foreign companies which own UK property. So, just kind of to break that down, in in the UK, um, it's already the case that the government publishes information about every property in England and Wales, which is Owned by a foreign company, so a British Virgin Islands company, a Luxembourg company, whatever. So that's that's great, and we already know that. Um, but what we don't know so far is who owns those companies. So it's kind of a, a big loophole because, okay, we found out that some company in the British Virgin Islands owns it, um, but who stands behind that? We don't know. So this this new law um, basically closes that loophole, or, or it seeks to, um, and that's that's really significant. Um, and I think that's going to have a really uh, positive effects on the problem we've seen for many years, which is anonymous ownership of properties in the UK. Um, one, I guess, downside of it is that you know the. the I think it will probably apply the um, principle of twenty five percent threshold being considered to be a you know beneficial ownership, um, and so you know if if uh, you have several owners of a company. Um, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to see who those are if they're under that threshold. And that's a problem we've seen in, in, uh, you know, other projects, like, for example, the, uh, OpenLux, which is another OCCRP project based on, you know, uh, disclosures of the beneficiaries of, of Luxembourg companies. And in that, you know, we, we did see where you had like kind of syndicated investment structures, um, with many different investors. You wouldn't be able to see who, who owns that company. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not a silver bullet and there could be problems, but it's a really great step um Another change that is being put put forward is to strengthen the uh the the law that's called the unef- um, unexplained wealth order so this has been in place for about five years now um it's a it, It's a mechanism which law enforcement can use to basically go to um you know go to basically to go to the owner of a, of a property let's say and say you know how did you pay for this? you have to prove it to us so putting the onus on them, uh, it's been pretty useless so far. There haven't really been any successes. Um, it was kind of much heralded at first uh, that, you know, so far there have been very few successes and actual quite public failures in, in, in implementing this. Um, there, there are a few, uh, you know, updates proposed to that specific mechanism. Um, I think it's really early to say in the proof will be in the pudding, how that will be applied and whether it will be effective.
0: Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to join RiskWatch. I know it's been a really busy few weeks for you and the team.
1: My pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on.
0: Of course, of course. Um, and for our listeners who are looking to follow OCCRP's investigative projects, um, you know, please check out their website, OCCRP.org. Um, also, Tom's a fantastic Twitter follow for all things transnational corruption and cross-border money laundering at TRE Stocks. Um, thanks again, Tom, and uh, good luck with the rest of the investigative project.
1: Thanks, Seth. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> See ya.